So it's Mike Butcher here, the editor of TechCrunch Europe, and I have with me Eric Rees, who's the author of The Lean Startup. Uh, Eric, you're doing a whirlwind tour of Europe at the moment. How's it going? It's been wonderful, a little bit exhausting, but uh, really, really hectic and, and just really fun. How's the reception been? Well, I don't have anything to compare it to, but it's been very, I've been very pleased and my publisher has been very pleased, so I take it that that's a good sign. Uh, the turnout has really been very strong at, you know, I think we're more than a dozen events now, and I don't know, people always told me to expect that the entrepreneurship scene in London is quite small compared to what I'm used to, but I don't know what they're talking about. People, people are interested, and they seem very, very energetic, very enthusiastic, so I feel very grateful. Um, let's talk a little bit about the book, um, and I'm, I'm sure you've, you've been asked these questions many times before, but I mean, you made it to the New York Times bestseller list, which is an incredible achievement. Um, and you seem to be building a whole brand out of the methodology of, of Lean. Um, I mean, is there a sort of end to this, or does it just carry on? I mean, do we, how does it work? Well, I do think this is a movement, and the movement is not owned or controlled by me. In fact, it's not really about me at all, although I you know, often get the, the accolades. That's really not right. What's happening is there's a worldwide community of entrepreneurs who are getting together to say, we can and should systematically study entrepreneurship and get better at it and share what we've learned with each other and try to advance the state of the art in entrepreneurial thinking. And that movement is just getting started. So although we had some pretty notable wins, we're getting people away from the vanity metrics and the success theater and all this nonsense that characterizes current entrepreneurial summer. We'll be prepared when winter comes. Uh, Beyond that, I think our, our goal has to be the total reform of all of the entrepreneurial ecosystem. So not just helping entrepreneurs be smarter with how they use their resources, but also to help big companies and VCs uh, hold entrepreneurs accountable in a more rational way uh, so that oh, you know, overall our society's resources that are devoted to new things are spent better. Um, you said, mentioned something about the entrepreneurial spring at the moment. Uh, you were yeah. referring to the, the amount of hype going on, especially right. in tech. Oh my God, it's, 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 it's reached crazy proportions. And I, you know, I always tell entrepreneurs, uh, you know, winter is coming uh, for fans of, fans of the books and the, and the miniseries. What's, winter has come, though, for, for people in many traditional industries right. as well. Right, exactly. And, and we have this crazy divergence between the entrepreneurial economy and the real economy, which can last as long as the private equity and the pension funds are willing to fund it. But it, at the end, the end of the day, our salaries are paid by how much value we create for actual customers, and the customers live in the real economy. So at, like, the divergence is not sustainable. Eventually, these two have to converge, and I think we have a choice. Depending on how well we spend the private equity guy's money as entrepreneurs, if we create more value than is invested, I think we have the chance to lift up the real economy and be part of the future prosperity of our society. And if we're just frittering it away on you know, more and more success theater and making ourselves look successful and you know raising money in order to raise more money every time we do that we actually run the risk that rather than pull up the real economy the real economy will drag down the entrepreneurial economy i think that would be a terrible result in the tech community we're obviously very familiar with as you call it success theater and, and hype and in a sense there is a kind of a, a kind of oxygen that gives startups because you know everyone gives it gets to get gets a break as it were, yeah. and you know, you, especially in Silicon Valley, people love you know people to be entrepreneurs, whether or not it fails or not. Right. Um, and uh, but uh, I mean, there's I mean, whereas in funny enough in Europe we're often completely the other end of the spe spectrum. Oh, it'll fail from the word go, <laughs> etc. Yeah. I mean, how do we meet the bring these two worlds together a little bit? Yeah, I think it's a real advantage of people outside the Silicon Valley bubble. I mean, look. 
I live in Silicon Valley by choice because I think it is the world headquarters for entrepreneurship, and I don't make any bones about the fact that I think we do it very well there. But I think being outside of that um, echo chamber can be a real advantage. You know, we have to get better everywhere at accepting and tolerating failure, but not exactly celebrating failure either and not being indifferent to failure because every ounce of energy we put into the success theater and the hype is an ounce of energy we could have put into actually making the world a better place by actually serving customers, actually creating real success. And I, you know, will keep pointing out that the companies that have been really truly successful did the hype on the basis of the amazing results they had already achieved. Uh, and you know, if you look at the Googles and the Facebooks and the Ebays of the world, uh, the hype and the VC money and the big valuations all came after they really were already changing the world. So I mean, I would basically say, let's just put an end to companies doing press hype on spec. You know, I, I wish entrepreneurs would stop doing that. And I certainly wish journalists would stop printing it because it's not news, it's speculation. Well, that's a t- that's it's fascinating um, view, especially to speaking to a TechCrunch journalist, of course. <laughs> well, you know, I judge um, my audience carefully. Here. <laughs> um, would would you say that um, it's something that that we the media needs to become more, you know, self reflecting about? It, it is. I can't blame it on the media because uh, as we as readers, that's what we like to read. We love the fantasy stories and the hype and the speculation, and it gets us all excited. So, I mean, we are ultimately our, where we put our attention as individuals is shaping this entire this entire thing. So, you know, I don't I don't mean to put the blame on journalists, but I do wish if I could ask for one thing, uh, the next time some company reports to you their vanity metrics, those gigantic numbers, we've got 150 million messages sent on our platform. Uh, I wish that was con- that was meted with ridicule. And for journalists to say, okay, you're probably giving me those numbers because they make you look good, but they don't actually reveal anything important about your business. So let's get below those numbers and let's talk about what are the conversion rates and are they going up or down? Are you actually, do you have any evidence as a company that you're making your product better, not worse? And if we could get answers to those questions, if we could just pressure companies a little bit more to not get away with the vanity metrics, I really think that's one thing that could help reveal who's actually doing a good job and deserves the praise and who's bullshitting. Very good, very, very, very good things to expire to, I would say. Um, talking about the book, um, you talked about how lean startups. I mean, do you think that you could apply lean methodology to? Oh, we're we're in a venue. We're being uh, <laughs> just prior to the uh, to sound the check, sound, sound check. check. Yeah. Um, do you think you could apply lean startup methodology to massive companies as well as tiny startups like Apple, for instance? <laughs> Listen, this is considered very controversial in Silicon Valley, and I, most people there, I think, think I'm really wasting my time going around playing consultant to these big companies. But I really honestly believe that what makes you an entrepreneur is nothing to do with how big your company is or what business you're in. It's fundamentally about institution building under conditions of extreme uncertainty, and that, that matches the work that you know, general managers who are tasked with developing new products for big companies are tasked to do. It's also, by the way, the same problem that people in big companies that are tasked with buying startups have to do. We know how badly it goes when big companies buy startups. We know that the product often exits at the same time as the employees uh, and the investors. But we are empowering clueless uh, corp dev guys at these big companies who we make fun of most of the time to anoint the future leaders of our entrepreneurship hubs because they make certain people very, very wealthy when they buy their companies, whether or not that wealth is actually deserved. And those people become the angel investors and the thought leaders and the whole cycle uh, repeats. So I think it's actually very important for us to educate our colleagues in big companies uh, what entrepreneurship is all about, what it really is. And I would like to see them actually start to practice things like what we call innovation accounting, which is a way of holding entrepreneurs accountable to real metrics, not the vanity metrics. 
Um, you say startups tend to be more high risk than they really need to be. Uh, how does that translate into practice? Sure. The most natural thing in the world for an engineer who wants to build a new company is you have a great idea for a new technology, you spend a few years building it, you launch it with great fanfare and hype, and then you hope for the best. And that seems like a dedication to quality and getting it right and really doing a good job, but it's actually, I think, a vanity exercise. It is actually magnifying risk unnecessarily because it puts the most risky question for most tech startups, namely, do people actually want the product at the end of the development process rather than where it should be at the beginning? And so I think if we have the courage to put our incomplete early versions in front of people, not in the press, not not premature launching publicly, but if we were willing to put them in front of customers, not to ask them what they want, but to test their reactions. And if we have the courage to really do that and still stick to our vision, that's real entrepreneurship. Um, I mean, talk about vanity and things like that, but it's human nature uh, and we're dealing with. And often people's imaginations can run away with them, especially in the startup world. Oh, we must have this preacher or we must do this, go in this direction. How do you hold yourself back? I mean, how do you create this sort of zen-like state, is it? <laughs> it's not a matter of will or intention. It has to be a matter of methodology. That's why I spend so much time talking about process. That's why Lean Startup is all bound up in this process, is that as human beings, we naturally get carried away. That's why it took the human species so many thousands of years to develop the scientific method. It's not like we didn't have success in agriculture and in inventing the wheel and all kinds of good things before science. It's just that by being more systematic about it, we were able to identify which knowledge is really, really true and which things are just called beliefs. And so if we use an analytical framework to hold ourselves accountable, we can tell, hey, are we actually making progress? Is the product actually getting better over time or not? You define a startup as a human institution designed to create a new product or service under conditions of extreme uncertainty. That implies a huge amounts of potential failure because obviously humans are involved. But, um, and often your methods are characterized as sort of reductionist, as it were. Can you be a reductionist where humans are involved? I hear, I hear that critique sometimes, and it really doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I mean, I understand the way that people have been taught science in grade school sometimes is a very formulaic thing. You remember all, like, problem statement, hypothesis, data, conclude. But real science is not practiced that way, and real science is actually one of humanity's most creative endeavors. So this is not about turning entrepreneurship into a rigid formula. It's about channeling our vision and our strategy and our hope and our dreams into its most productive form, precisely because those commodities are so precious that you can't afford to waste them. So I think when we look back on our current entrepreneurial practice decades from now, we will laugh at what we're currently doing. It will seem as quaint to us then as 19th century methods of production look to us now. You, um, what are some of the misunderstandings around the, quote, minimum viable product, <laughs> unquote? Uh, I mean, like, you know, spending nothing and living on water. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a very misunderstood term. But it's also such an important term that it's important to get it right. I mean, first thing is, uh, if, you're, if you're using minimum viable product as an excuse when you're talking to Robert Scoble about why your product sucks, you really don't understand, right? This is not a concept for the press. This is a concept for ourselves to figure out how do we start the process of learning. And I think the biggest thing people don't understand is that they think minimum viable product is an excuse to ship something crappy. Uh, and kind of be like, well, it's scrappy, but that's an MVP. What am I going to do? Uh, if you think your MVP is crappy, then you're not going to learn anything from it because you're not going to be surprised that people don't like it. But here's the funny thing. Let's say you ship something that you think is crappy and people actually don't like it. What people don't realize, what most entrepreneurs don't realize, is that actually means if that... Like, imagine how many things have to go right for you to actually get the result that you fear. It means that you know who your customer is, 
You know how to reach them. You know how to get them to try your product. You know what they care about, so you know what kind of feedback you'll get from their product. And you're, of course, afraid that you'll alienate them so much that they'll go tell the whole world about it, which means they deeply, deeply care about the problem you're trying to solve. That's actually, that's actually a pretty good result. Most of the time when people put an MVP out there, the reason they want it being tempted to talk to Robert Scoble is that nobody cares. And they're trying to juice up the numbers and amplify the MVP. And that's exactly backwards. If nobody cares, if customers won't even try the product, that's an indication that something is wrong in the strategy. And rather than amping it up, we should immediately stop and build the next minimum viable product to try to figure out, no, what have we learned? How do we make it better? So MVP is actually not one thing. It's a process of constant iteration in the service of building a high-quality product. Um. We're going to have to wrap up soon because I think they want you on stage <laughs> shortly. But um, thinking about, you talk about runway in your book um, as a start of a number of, think about runway in terms of number of pivots you have in the lifetime of the company, how much revenue you got, whatever you funding, revenue, whatever it is. Um, is there an ideal number of pivots? Is there a formula to this? There isn't. Um, empirically speaking, most companies seem to get about three pivots, three major pivots before you know people start to lose patience. Uh, Mike Maples, who's a great angel investor in Silicon Valley, once said that he noticed that no matter how much money you raise, you will spend it all in 18 months. So it's like your runway is actually fixed in time. You can't get more runway through more money. You just, you just have to raise the right amount. And I, I mean, I think all those things are true. Look, if it was possible to have success without pivoting, I'd be all for it. And I just am not aware of any cases where that's really happened. And every entrepreneur I've talked to who has been, just been through a pivot, they all wish they had done it sooner. It's one of those things that's really confusing when you're in the moment, but when you look back, you're glad you did it. So what we're trying to do is we can't make the process of pivoting into a formula. It's still a matter of human judgment. We just want to make it less fraught with difficulty so that companies can make good, fact-based decisions that you know are informed by what's really happening, where everyone on the team can kind of be on the same page about whether the current thing is working or not. And if it's not working, just admit it and do something better. You're, lastly, you're a great observer of, of the technology ecosystem um, and you're travelling in Europe. What's your impression of the uh, startups and the people that you meet? Uh, are you seeing this, having the same kinds of, exactly the same kinds of conversations you would have in the Valley or uh, do you think that we're still in the Cretaceous period, as it were, <laughs> of, of evolution of, in, of, of startups or what's your, what's your view? That's a good question. It's hard to say I'm so inside it right now. I mean, I definitely think there are two things that are coming up far more often here than they ever do in the States. One is people feel like a failure is really a black mark on your record that could ruin your career. And you can't, you know, I've heard people say things like, I'll never be able to get a loan again from a bank if you have a failure on your record. And I do think that's, that's a you know, dangerous precedent. But the other thing that's come up a lot is that uh, people in, in Britain seem to be especially afraid of the minimum viable product. It, it really has spooked quite a few people. And in fact, uh, I was at Seed Camp the other day, and I was trying to encourage one of the companies to actually launch. They had a great product. I was excited. I was like, I want to sign up and pay for this product. It looks so good to me. And I could not get them to actually release the product. He was too afraid. And there seems to be a very common pattern that people feel like there's a real attitude of doing your best work, putting your best foot forward, and the MVP just seems like it's like a cop-out of some kind. And I really think that's deeply misguided. And what I said to this guy at Seed Camp was, listen, you are actually being very arrogant. You think you're the one who gets to decide that customers aren't good enough to have your product, be not till you say that it's ready. Listen, I'm speaking as your potential customer here. I'll make that decision for myself. You 
Your job is to provide me with the service and then see if I actually like it. But don't try to take away from me the opportunity to use a product that you think is only half done, but I think is actually fantastic. And in fact, as he was talking about making it more complicated, I was like, listen, the features you're planning to add are actually making the product worse. So, so stop what you're doing and let me have it. So I think that definitely seems to be a cultural thing that I, I really encourage people here to get over. Eric Chris, thank you very much. It's really my pleasure. Thank you very much.